this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure, maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing. You get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the Value Builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. Okay, so this is a cool opportunity. It's not every day you get to talk to a guy who sold his company to Nike. Nike, the world's you know master marketer, the huge behemoth on the West Coast. Peter Fader sold his business Zodiac uh, that he co-founded to Nike. And uh, some interesting lessons here. One of the things I want you to pay special attention to is how Peter carved out the ability to go start a new company in a similar but different industry. Um, and also his greatest regret was not carving out something. So listen for that uh, because I think it can be super helpful for you as you go into the negotiation of the sale of your company, thinking through what you want to go do next. And if it has anything close to what you're doing today, being really proactive about what it is that you want to go do and, and making sure that your non-compete doesn't disallow you from doing that. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Peter Fader. Peter Fader, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Great to talk to you. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. I'm I'm keen to talk about this company Zodiac. So, uh, give me the background on where Zodiac came from. You were a professor of uh, statistics, I believe, at Wharton. Is that right? You flatter me. I'm a professor of marketing. <laughs> I'm a, <laughs> I'm a wannabe statistician, <laughs> uh, but really, is it's it's right there on that interface of, of marketing and statistics, doing good, meaty statistical stuff, but in a way that that marketing people would would really care and would really want to use it in in a practical setting. And and the it in this case is the idea of customer lifetime value, a concept that lots of people talk about. I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with and might even kind of mess around with. Well, that's what I do really rigorously, both in the academic work that I've been doing for 30 odd years at Wharton, as well as uh, working with a lot of companies. No, you know, when I think of a professor, I think of a guy with like the, the what what are the the patches on the <laughs> <laughs> the elbows. Let me, you know let me I mean? check. <laughs> but that's what I think of. But you're a professor with a twist because you founded a company. Yeah, well, but I've never been a conventional professor in the way I profess and the, the kinds of things that I study and in my desire to do work that really is practical. So that's been a hallmark of what I've been doing all this time. But it's it's the it's this latest set of applications, again, around both the development and the application of, of uh, customer lifetime value um, that, that, you know, it does set me apart from other colleagues in, in the field. But at the same time, I think some of them envy it, knowing that they can do leading edge research 
research, but can have meaningful commercial value as well. So talking about commercial value, you started this company called, or co-founded, I guess I should say more accurately, Zodiac. So tell us what Zodiac did from a, like, what was the business model? So it was super simple. We would calculate customer lifetime value uh, for for every customer for a variety of different companies. Basically, we were working with retailers and, and I don't know, travel and hospitality and pharmaceuticals and just basically any firm that had customer level data, which is a lot of firms. Uh, more or less, we had an API that would hook into the, the API, a connection between your software, your algorithm and their Well, before data. even getting to the algorithm, just, uh, just uh, from kind of our servers to their transaction log system. So we just kind of suck in the right kind of data, you know, appropriately anonymized and, and so on, but just the, the, the key inputs that would let us then run the algorithms to then calculate customer lifetime value at a granular level saying this is what this customer is going to be worth over the next you know, however many years you're interested in, this is what that customer is going to be worth. Do all those calculations in near real time and then either take all of that stuff and, and send it right back out to the company to let them do the slicing and dicing on, on their own machines. Or we, we had a, a wonderful platform where we would basically host companies and, and make it super easy for them to understand what makes the high value customers different than the low value ones and then to hook right up to any kind of email marketing platform or directly to Facebook in order to go out there and try to find more people who have those characteristics. So it really was the CLV engine that would facilitate other kinds of applications, but was focusing more on the just the the, the facilitation itself as opposed to the, the sending the emails and, and any of the other activities. Got it. So if I'm a big, whatever, a, a big retailer is an example, mm-hmm. your system would allow me to say this customer... Um, because he or she bought these three products in this sequence from this zip code in this time frame, they are very likely to be worth X in the future. Whereas this customer over here looks a little bit like the first customer, but because they came from this zip code and they only bought this product, they're unlikely to be amount to very much. So invest in the first customer. Don't spend a lot on the second customer. That's it. And we would basically draw the line there uh, and say, now it's up to you to decide whether you want to clone and find more customers like the first one or whether you want to try to change the behavior and kind of upsell that second one. We're not telling you what to do. You know, we're happy to give you uh, lots of, uh, of use cases. Here's the 50 fun things that people do once they have those CLVs, but we're not a consulting firm. We're just, we're just this, this engine that's going to give you the best metrics to base those decisions on. It's funny you raise consulting firms because when I think of a business like this, I think of the big consultancies, Accenture, Deloitte, et cetera, mm-hmm. that, that would get hired. You know, uh, Walmart would pay him 500 grand to do a CLV study uh, and, and, and they would sort of come in, they do the project and they leave again. Yep. Um, and so how were you guys different? So, so in a couple of different ways. Number one, the models that we're using are just absolutely the world's best. And and the nice thing is they've gone through all this academic validation. It's real easy to to demonstrate both 
why they're good, how they're good, uh, to, to bake them off against other models. So one is it's just it's the best, best, best stuff. But two, and it goes back to your early question, it comes down to the business model, which is we, we had a SaaS relationship with these companies. So we would encourage them to run the models as often as possible. They're paying us effectively a fixed monthly fee. And if they wanted to run the model today on these customers and tomorrow on those customers, let's run it for this part of the business or that geography, do it. That the, the point is to use these models as often as possible to see the value from them rather than making it this kind of once a year big ticket thing. Uh, and my view is, and it really worked, is that the more that you do it as kind of just day-to-day tactical, let's try to understand this acquisition campaign or that retention activity, the, the, the more that you use the models, the more that you'll see the value in them and use them for an ever broader set of use cases. How did you so get around- that's a big difference. Sorry, Peter, interrupt, but how did you get around the data- uh, privacy issues because I'm like you're getting access to the transaction level data. I mean, this is right. the secret sauce. This is the most private data that companies you know, have. It's it's super interesting to to go back and disagree with something you said a few minutes ago. Um, I I didn't care what zip codes people uh, live in. I don't care anything about their their demographics, their psychographics. I don't care anything about their income, uh, what cars they drive. Um, all we wanted to know was very boring transaction log data. So let's take this person, all we want is their ID number and nothing else, and I just, I just want to know uh, what they bought, when, and for how much. But so presumably you had to go through a bunch of hoops to get like a big retailer to agree to... Yeah, no? yeah that's a fair point, fair point. Now, the, 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 yes, and, and there were cases where there'd be a lot of pushback and we'd have to just, you know, um, do, do a whole whole dance around, around things. Um, uh, and there were cases actually where we had to, um, where we couldn't port the data over to our servers, where we actually had to build this thing inside the company, the client's firewall, uh, which we did in a couple of cases. And, you know, obviously there was a little bit more work involved with that, but, we're, but the models were portable enough that it wasn't uh, too burdensome. So, uh, and you know, that is, it's a, it's a very fair point that that was one of the limiting factors that the, despite the appeal of all these use cases and the accuracy of the models, there were some who were saying, I don't care about all that upside potential. We're just not going to go there. It's just too risky for us. And that's fine. Their loss. So business model was SaaS, meaning software as a service. So the customer could log in and run an unlimited number of sort of queries, uh, um, um, analyze the data as many times as they want. You charged right. per per enterprise per seat. How did you actually charge for it? Uh, it, it would basically uh, it was per enterprise, uh, and and it would just differ basically you know, high, medium, low in terms of the, the size of the customer base. And just give um, us a sense of sort of roughly what it would cost a month. Are we talking sort of fifty to one hundred dollars a month, or like tens of thousands of dollars a month? Like just give us a um, sense of the. Scope. Oh, Park kind of where our sort of median client would have been a 10k per month. 10k per month. Okay, so mm-hmm. that's so they're spending about 100 grand a year, roughly, mm-hmm. with you for access to this. And by the way, this is the easy justification for it. These models are super well established. I can't tell you how many companies were were hiring someone, often one of my former students, to say your job is to run these models. So we're saying, look, you're going to pay a, a qualified, you know, a, a real high uh, performance data scientist around that 100 grand. This way, we're running the models for you. 
We're constantly updating them. We're giving you this platform and, and all these integrations that gonna, it's going to make it so much easier for you to then act on the models. So, so economically, it was actually in company's best interest just to outsource it to us rather than to try to replicate it in-house. How did you guys finance the business? On a SaaS model, you're only getting 10K a month, yet mm-hmm. I'm sure there was some some fairly beefy startup costs to, especially given the data integrity and data security issues, you got to build up a bit. Sure of, thing. No doubt about it. How did you uh, well, it was a very uh, conventional uh, VC arrangement. So we, we, uh, you know, we did a, uh, a series, uh, uh, sorry, did a seed round and we were uh, just about to do our, our series A round uh, when we exited. But uh, yeah, we got to some, some blue chip VCs behind us. Big shout out to first round capital. How did you do that? Cause P- I, I guess listeners are going, how does, how does a professor with, you know, Maybe let, let a, like just an idea at this point. Like, how do you get VC money? Because for a lot of people, that's sort of a dream that they would love to get, but would never. Yeah. Well, well, it didn't hurt that that I had former students uh, in prominent roles at the VCs that we worked with. <laughs> so, so Great. the main principal at First Round Capital, Josh Koppelman, Kop- is is one of my former students, and 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 uh, and you know I just know him super well from the, the Philadelphia community. Uh, so, so that really helped. But, but also this was more than just an idea that these models have been around for for a couple of decades now, and like I said, a lot of companies have been using them. So, I've been putting these. Models out there. I've been going to companies and saying, "Here's the R code. Here are the spreadsheets. Here are the videos. Go use them. Hire someone. Do it." So, so the the, the use cases were, were plentiful. We had to establish the incremental value that Zodiac offered above and beyond the kind of let's call them academic models, which we were able to do. Um, but there's there's no question that there are uh, there are a lot of people and companies kind of lining up saying you know work with us next and uh, that was very gratifying. How did you guys figure out the value of the company for that that VC seed round? And the other thing, it's a great question, and it was because the idea of building a business around lifetime value is so unusual, uh, we had to basically benchmark ourselves against uh, other firms that were doing different kinds of, of predictive analytics. So we'd kind of look at what they were doing and, and understanding both what they were charging as well as what kind of value their clients were deriving. Uh, and and even using the kind of argument that I mentioned a moment ago about, you know, if you're going to hire someone to do this, just, just pay us instead. So it wasn't, um, it, it, it took a bit of creativity, but it wasn't that hard to kind of uh, piece together uh, the, the value that, that uh, folks would see and then kind of just, you know, building it up from there. So, uh, and I also have to say, <clears throat> maybe this is a really good thing. I myself wasn't that involved in, in that part of it. I wasn't uh, uh, kind of leading the round. Uh, we, you know, we had a, a CEO who was, who was doing all that sort of, sort of stuff. So it was my job to kind of uh, demonstrate the validity of the models, uh, a cheerlead about their uh, about their their applicability and and like whoa usefulness, uh, which I did in lots of different ways, both as a professor and then I you know, wrote a book on some of this kind of stuff. And uh, so so we found a lot of ways to get the word out there and left it to the business people to actually uh, kind of get the, the round going and to, to run the company on a day-to-day basis. So who were the, the founders, uh, the original founders? It was yourself... So we had a, a wonderful team. It was it was kind of a dream team. Uh, so uh, uh, there was uh, one of my uh, PhD students, a guy named Dan McCarthy. We'll say more about him later on. Uh, and he was actually 
helping, his whole dissertation was about extending and coming up with some really creative applications of these models. So it was only natural to work with him. And then another stat PhD student, a guy by the name of Justin Bleich, who was more into machine learning than into the kind of probabilistic models that were at the heart of Zodiac. And that was a very important component to add Again, we could talk about why. And then the business guy, a fellow by the name of Artem Marishan, who he he was he was the CEO, all Wharton alums, uh, by the way, um, and uh, and it was his job to do all the 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 day to day stuff, which he did very well. So everyone had their role, everyone had their their specialized background, and then of course we started building the team from there in the usual way with data science people and client success people and sales folks and so on. So it became you know on the surface a, a conventional looking company just delivering a very unconventional uh, piece of, of value to the clients. How many employees were you guys up to when you were acquired by Nike? Uh, I think we had, uh, goodness gracious, how can I forget now, like 12 or 13 full-time, then a bunch of, of, of part-timers uh, in, in different kinds of uh, specialized roles themselves. Uh, we, we were working in the shared workspace up in New York for, for the most part, but then we had uh, uh, most of our engineers down here in Philadelphia. Uh, so, uh, so you know, it was it was really establishing itself, uh, and again, in a, a you know, it it was a company, and we were getting all kinds of great attention as you know, hot young tech companies and this and that, and the professorial part was more kind of either icing on the cake or just just a, a way to kind of pique people's interest. But uh, like I said. I wasn't running things on a day-to-day -day basis. I was still doing research and teaching my classes as well as, you know, very much helping uh, look over the shoulders of the data scientists and, and helping with the salespeople kind of, you know, on the side. Uh, but uh, it was uh, it was a, a serious business that, that our investors uh, looked at in, in, a, in, a, in a very uh, conventional way. So let's talk about that because you, you raised the seed round um and you were, I think you were about to say you were, you were on the precipice of, of going through a first uh, round, uh, a second round of capital raise yep, and, yep. um, and, and you decided to sell the company. So maybe take us through that. Yeah. Yeah. What's this the is, this there? is the, this is the heart of the story right yeah. here. So things were going really, really well. And we were just about to do our A round. We we're just about to really put our, our, the pedal to the metal and, and we uh, really hire a kind of an, an army of, of sales and client success people. You know, we had established ourselves, uh, I think very well between the models and, and just good client relationships. But it was time to grow this thing. So we, we, we knew what we had to do. Uh, and we were good to go, and we literally had the term sheet from our A round. Well, how and much then, money were you trying to raise for the A round? Um, well, let's see. We, we raised about $3 million in this initial seed round, and we were trying to go for... Can I be forgetting? It's crazy. Um, about uh, about uh, five or six million in the A round. Got it. Okay. Um, so no, we we were going to really, really, really grow this thing. Again, we had a very good plan in place. We had a really nice pipeline of prospects that we just needed. Just a little bit more boots on the ground to go after them. And then one of our clients, this 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 company called Nike. Uh, you know, we had done a couple of projects with them, and just and they saw the value of the models, and they said we want it all. 
Uh, and we said, oh, that's great. We'll give you all the bandwidth you want, Nike. They said, no, 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 we want it all. <laughs> uh, and so uh, so basically through the month of February, it was just discussions both with them. as well, what, what do you really mean by that? Like, what do we do with our other clients? As well as discussions among the team and the investors about uh, are we really prepared to kind of, you know, give it all up and just be swallowed up by one company versus, you know, ha- having a, a broader perspective. Uh, so that was... Uh, it was some some really really uh, interesting discussions about uh, what do we value, where will we have the greatest impact, what will we do next, you know, what will Nike do with all this, uh, and in the end we we found that uh, first of all it was a, a very nice offer on Nike's part. Second of all, it was very clear that that Nike's intent was really sincere and serious is going to have a big impact there. And number three, it's not that we're just giving up on these models; we're just going to give up on the particular go-to-market approach that that Zodiac had. But there's still other ways that we can commercialize these models well outside of the range of activities that Nike would be interested in. Great. And I want to get to that. But before we do that, let's get a little further into this acquisition. So so Nike comes to you and says, we want it all. You're like, what do you mean? <laughs> and they say, no, no, we want to acquire the company. Um did they put a term sheet together or was it sort of very loose conversations? Like at what point oh, did no. it... Go ahead. It was, well, I mean, it's, of course, started as loose conversations, but then became uh, very serious, very formal, very quickly. Uh, and again, lots and lots of back and forth on, on that. A, a company like that isn't going to be doing things in, in a casual way. And that was just a really great uh, kind of, you know, growing up moment for us. Because, again, even though we were doing things in a very conventional way and we had, you know, good lawyers and accountants and all that kind of thing, this was just a whole different conversation. Fortunately, I want to go back to, to our team, uh, they were just just super good and, and experienced about just knowing how to manage that conversation. Uh, it, it, uh, if it were left to my own devices, like, humana, 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 I wouldn't know what to do. Uh, so I think we, we managed it very well. And it was all, you know, it was serious, but also kind of collegial with, with Nike. It was, uh, we, we had uh, a lot of back and forth, but, uh, but I think we were all on the same page about uh, what we all wanted to achieve with it. So, so there was there was no 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 uh, no bickering about it. Uh, but yeah, it was uh, just a you know, lot a lot a lot of paperwork uh, about what this would mean, not only the parameters of the sale, but in terms of uh, the the ongoing roles, which you know something that you're talking to people all the time about who, who stays, uh, what what happens to them, and and so on. And we went through all of that. All of our technical people are now uh, full-time Nike employees and, and, and loving it over there. Uh, and, uh, and then the, the folks on the outside, in particular, Dan McCarthy and myself, we have our professor jobs. Uh, we'll, we will continue to in, engage with Nike, kind of look over their shoulders to make sure the models are being uh, run and used well. And then our CEO, Artem Marichin, is also in a senior director role at Nike now. So, so many questions. Talk to me about the relationship because it sounds like Josh. Josh was the guy, the the guy from the the uh, that led the seed round from first. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's his name, Josh. Josh Koppelman. Yes, got it. So, I'm dying to find out what the dynamic was like around the sort of inner circle because you've got Josh who's injected some capital which he wants a return on clearly mm-hmm. um, it sounds like you and Dan are almost more evangelical about the product and its usage maybe less commercially or less financially motivated if I can use that expression I think that's that's fair to say yep and then mm-hmm. Artem I mean not, not to take that off the table completely but no. but sure we, we had our day jobs no doubt mm-hmm. and so yep. 
and so how was the what was the dynamic like between the the you know the outside capital you know the steward of that being Josh mm-hmm. and and Artem being the business guy and then you Dan and Justin who sound a little bit more purists about the technology yeah, and, and Justin, uh, our, our fourth co-founder, had left. He he got oh. uh, an offer he couldn't refuse from a hedge fund, but but still on uh, left on, on on good terms. Uh, no, this was a really 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 interesting conversation because we there was there's no question we had the potential to 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 grow this thing. Um, much bigger for the, the kinds of exits that that first round and and our other uh, seed investors uh, would would. Uh, normally uh, want to have. Um, but what happened here is that the the offer from, from Nike at this moment, in the, the, it was basically, it all came down to discounted cash flow. Uh, and it was just such a good offer at this, this moment that, yeah, we could grow this thing and the potential was absolutely there. But to have this, this amount of money, which of course I can't disclose, but, but available right then, um, we, we, we spoke about it, both from a financial standpoint as well as a kind of gospel-spreading standpoint. Uh, and, and we decided net-net that uh, we, we should take this, this good offer right now um, and uh, you know, forego the, 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 the tremendous growth potential that the company had. And, and you know, again, we, 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 there was some, some soul-searching about that, but I think in the end we, we all agreed that it was the right thing to do. What did the money mean to you personally? Uh, interesting. So the, the biggest part about it, besides just being just, you know, wonderfully gratifying and just what a great, um, indication of, of impact of academic work, like, wow, you know, you wrote all these papers and here's this payoff from them, which, which really does feel good. Uh, uh, a lot of the money went immediately into our, our next startup. Uh, so, yeah, so it's so it's not like I've had uh, a chance to to really enjoy uh, financially anything, uh, but but basically uh, we took one particular use case uh, that one that I mentioned before that the Nike wasn't all that interested in, uh, and we said you know what we're going to do that. So so Dan and I co-founded a new company called Theta Equity Partners that is focusing on the idea of customer-based corporate valuation. So it's not our goal to say, here is the value of customer A, customer B, customer C. We now want to just add all that up and say, you know what? Let's value the company from the bottom up and come up with a a number that in many cases will be more accurate then, but at least more kind of diagnostic and operational than just the usual top-down multiples. So now we're working with private equity firms and late-stage VCs and others using the same models, but a very, very different deliverable, very, very different use case, completely complementary to everything that we were doing at Zodiac and that, that Nike is doing. Uh, and that's, I think, the, the best of all worlds. So did you and Dan, because I, the obvious question that I'm sure you know listeners have is, is how did you carve out the ability to launch Theta Equity um, you, you know, at the same time as Nike using the system. So most deals would have sort of a non-compete where you were forbidden. Sure, sure, sure. You know, forbidden. Oh, and, and, and let me emphasize, yeah. there's a very strong and uh, non-compete in place that we're very, very respectful of, which is to say that we cannot work with, a, say, a retailer and say, here is the value of each and every customer and then help them figure out which emails to send to which ones at which time. We're not doing 
anything like that. Uh, the sad irony is that after the sale, I can't tell you how many companies stepped up and said, hey, we want to do some of that. We're saying, ah, sorry, we can't. Uh, so we're talking on, on a very specific, a very narrow use case, a completely different audience. Uh, and uh, and again, uh, being super, super careful. Every now and again, uh, for instance, we were talking to a, a big PE firm just last week, and they wanted us to do this with one of their portfolio companies and said, hey, by the way, then the portfolio company would like to uh, use the analyses for targeting. And we're saying that nah, we, we, we can't go there. We can't go there. Um, uh, you know, we could we can give you aggregate guidance just about, uh, you know, big, broad brush strokes about um, where you tend to be seeing value. Is it customers through this channel versus that? But we cannot get granular about it. So. So, again, there's a very clear non-compete. And, and I, uh, I would, would, wouldn't dare to, to, to even uh, come close to the line there. And fortunately, with Fade Equity Partners, there really is no need to. The questions that the P firms are asking uh, are, are generally uh, quite different. I would think so. Did you know about going into the Nike negotiations? Did you guys know that you might want to do some unrelated applications? Did you did you intentionally oh, carve out? Yeah. Yes, yes. So that was a, a major, major uh, part of it uh, because all of this work on customer based corporate valuation that's Dan McCarthy's dissertation. So, so Dan and I were talking about extending the models and applying them in different ways. It was, it was, it was on this use case primarily. Uh, so, so there's, so Nike isn't going to stand in the way of us doing ongoing academic work. They, they wouldn't even uh, propose to do so. Um, and so we had to make it as as clear and incentive compatible as possible. So yes, yeah, so there's an explicit carve out for all that, uh, and there's been no issues with it because, again, we understand what Nike. He wants. We understand what they don't want us to do, and there's just there's never been any time where we've even been tempted to go back to them and said, "Well, do you think we can maybe kind of do this?" <laughs> uh, there's a, just a, a very clear separation. The, the the great thing is, as I said before, that it's the it's basically the same model underneath it all. But in this case, we're talking to the CFO instead of the CMO. Uh, and then the other carve out, by the way, is I have, I mentioned I have this, uh, a book on customer centricity. I have a new book coming out in two weeks, the customer centricity playbook, little plug there. Um, and so it carved all of that out too, that I can still work with other companies to talk about this idea of focusing on the right customers and so on. I can't calculate CLV for them, uh, but, uh, but I can kind of talk to them about why they should be doing it themselves or working with other firms that might be doing it. Uh, so, so there are these, these two pieces that we've carved out. And th that's because what Dan and I are doing kind of in our academic work, and, and like I said, Nike wouldn't want to get in the way of that. We still have a good relationship with them, and they're not trying to um, constrain us in any way. Got it. But it was, it was part of the negotiation. Going back to the negotiation itself, you, you get this uh, kind of preemptive, in a real estate context, it would be called a bully offer where you know a buyer comes in before there's sort of a, a, a market for the, the home yet. But sure. in your case, you got this sort of almost surprising offer from Nike. Mm -hmm. did, did, was there a school of thought maybe among Josh or Artem that said, hey, if Nike's willing to pay us this, then there, there's probably a lot of other companies that would. Why don't we take oh. this thing to market? 
There's no question about that. Again, that was part of all that that soul searching that was yeah. going on. That that just the, the the offer from them by itself was just wonderful proof of concept. Uh, yeah, we 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 thought about that, uh, but it was it, it was such a good offer. Uh, and then again, the other two parts of it. Uh, number one. Uh, I'm just, I can't talk about how Nike is, is, is using the models on a day to day basis, but I'm just super interested in seeing how they're, they're making progress with it. Uh, so that, so I still get some kind of, let's call it academic satisfaction out of that. It's just great to be able to just know that they're uh, once again, um, validating all the things I've been talking about for years. And then again, the other part of it is, uh, is the uh, since we were able to carve out the the customer based corporate valuation piece, uh, it it made it uh, much more palatable for for Dan and I to say yeah okay sure you know you can you can you can have a Nike, uh, so it so it did oh, it did work out quite uh, amicably in the end and uh, you know it it doesn't always happen that way here we are uh, six seven months in since then and usually this is when you'd be feeling some of that tension or when some of the uh, some of your employees are now working for the the acquiring firm or feeling you know antsy or uncomfortable but it, it, it's been great how did you guys as a founding team uh, sort of reconcile that you and Dan would go off to kind of go do this new exciting Theta Equity Partners business which sounds exciting and and Artem it sounds like was 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 is now sort of seconded in or or an employee of Nike which for a lot of entrepreneurs would feel quite stilted and and you know like no, many entrepreneurs would feel working for a big company for a long period of time. It's not, it's not something they aspire. Yeah. Did you guys um, work through that? It, it's working out fine. And I, again, I, I wish I could say more, but um, it's been a, just a very nice uh, relationship within Nike. Uh, so, uh, 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 it's been, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's productive. He's, he's valued over there. Um, it's, uh, uh, I think he's, he's in a, in a just a, in a really good spot. Uh, so it's, yeah, everyone, you're right. The, the roles that we have now are, are, are quite different. Um, uh, but I, I think there's, everyone's happy with what they're doing and, and, and no regrets whatsoever about that, that, the, the, that big decision that we made a few months back. You know, it's, it's pretty common. I, I, uh, statistically speaking, the two reasons that most business owners sell their company is number one, they have a health scare of some sort, like a heart attack or something that, that, that basically makes them realize that they're, they're going to have to sell their company. The number two reason is they get an unsolicited offer like you, uh, mm -hmm. they get approached. And I'd be curious to know, you know, if you were at a pub and you guys were watching a Phillies game in Philadelphia and, and somebody came up to you and said, yeah, I've just been approached by a big Fortune 500 company who wants to buy my business. What advice would you have, Peter, for me about to go through this? What, you know, what would you say to that entrepreneur who's been proactively approached? They weren't looking for it, but they just got uh, approach. What what sort of tips or advice See, would you give them? I, I think you you just uh, you uh, just said that the key hint in there, which is were they looking for it or not? Yeah, you know, there, there's so many companies that the, the first part of their business plan, whether they acknowledge or not, is their exit strategy, um, and they're they're they really are you know built to sell, uh, and and sometimes that gets in the way of. Uh, 
of, of being able to kind of grow the business for the long run. Um, whereas in our case, or in that the, the, the bar scenario, when it happens serendipitously, you know, your, your, your first reaction, like, like mine was, was, wait a minute, no, we're, we're, I'm not, we're, we're not building this to sell. We're, 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 we're in it for the long run. Um, but, but, but it, it actually does cause you just to kind of step back and become very, uh, or you should become very objective about it and say, uh, yeah, you know, we could cling to this thing. We could run with it. Our, our ego is tied into it. But, you know, let's run the numbers and let's also look just at uh, at the at the opportunities that, that could arise, you know, the new doors that could open. Uh, in our case, put it this way, if we didn't have this, this wonderful next step, uh, the, to this idea of founding a new company using the, the, some of the, the, the Nike uh, uh, payments to, to kind of bootstrap it off the ground with, with no VC, it's, it's not clear that we would have sold. Uh, but, but seeing in this serendipitous way that it actually um, uh, it opened up other doors and opportunities, uh, we had, it, it was not a knee jerk, uh, decision on our part. And we, there was, again, a lot of numbers being crunched, a lot of discussions about uh, which path would be a better one. But but those discussions were, they were interesting, they were valuable, and, and I think uh, we, we, uh, we, we approached it intelligently and correctly. It sounds like a lot went right in this deal. I mean, it sounds like the perfect outcome in many ways. If there was one thing you might do slightly differently, um, what would it be? Oh, <laughs> uh, super easy. This is gonna. This this might not um, uh, be the the big broad answer you want. Maybe I can give you a, a bigger one. But um, we did a we created a lot of content uh, under Zodiac. Because again, we were building this thing to last. So we were you know, blogging all the time and uh, putting a lot of content out there. And uh, I guess it was all completely under the Zodiac umbrella and banner that when Nike bought it, they bought all that content. So I have all these blog posts and, and just other, just really interesting stuff that we put together that I think would continue to, to resonate, would have an audience, and it's all gone. <laughs> so, so there's a whole lot of really good content. I'm constantly looking around, hoping that maybe somebody somewhere copied one of these blog posts or something else. Uh, and it was something that uh, maybe I should have pushed harder on as part of the sale process. Uh, it, it, it just kind of got, almost got kind of lost in the shuffle. So we didn't do a good enough job. I didn't do a good enough job of kind of memorializing uh, what Zodiac was all about. Again, putting aside the models, just the, the impact that it had on companies, just the, the kind of the way that it get people to think, huh, you know, I just never really thought about my customers that way before. Uh, and for me, being a professor, it, it was a wonderful chance to profess. And all of a sudden, it's just like almost having the, the, a rug pulled out from under. But uh, it, again, it was just kind of bad, bad planning on my part. But, but yeah, it's a regret. It sounds uh, well. It, listen, I think that's a really valid tip for a lot of folks because uh, all the excitement and you get kind of rolled up in this excitement ball, if you will. And and there are things that maybe are important to you personally, or perhaps for your whatever future endeavor that it, that uh, if you don't think about them proactively, they all just get sucked into the deal. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I got you know I got a couple of Zodiac T-shirts. I got some business cards. <laughs> that's pretty much it. And I, I really think it is important, both just in terms of nostalgia. <laughs> 
as well as kind of ongoing learnings for yourself and that you can convey to others to do a better job of kind of memorializing uh, that startup before you let it uh, go away. So, so again, that that's that might sound like a, 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 a it doesn't have tremendous financial implications, unlike uh, a lot of things you might be hearing in, in response to that question. But I but I do think it, it's a, it's a meaningful point. I do, I do, and I, I appreciate you sharing it, uh, Peter. The story is amazing. I uh, I'm grateful for you sharing it with us and and uh, some obviously some great lessons. Where do people find out about you? What's the best way for them to connect with you? Uh, learn a little bit about Theta. Sure. Well, uh, they could just Google my name, Peter Fader. Uh, you know, it'll, it'll bring you to my, my Wharton faculty page, uh, but also go to Theta Equity com Theta Equity Partners to see what we're doing in the customer-based corporate valuation space. Like I said, new book coming out soon, and that's in some ways quite different than everything we've been talking about here. But you know, in some ways, it is just another a way of spreading the gospel about all of this stuff. And uh, you know, it's funny how people now call me a serial entrepreneur. That's not true. I'm a professor. I've just gotten super lucky twice. <laughs> Uh, and I'm and I'm not necessarily inclined to press my luck anymore. Well, it's uh, it's great to be with you, and I uh, appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Great talking to you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com/blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.